Tyler and welcome to Dialogos, where we speak with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. Um, today's guest is Jonathan Aitken, uh, who's had an incredible life, um, gone from uh, being a journalist to a politician to, of course, uh, a prisoner to and then uh, to a priest uh, afterwards. And uh, yeah, looking forward to delving into his life. And thank you for welcoming me into the comfort of your home, despite a few technical. Um, <laughs> Hiccups. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Jonathan, you became. It feels a bit short, just skipping over your massive time as a journalist. But um, you're known as the politician. Um, when you went into politics, what was your reason for going in? Was it because you were just following your father? Was there a real desire to make things better? Um, I think there were probably two motives. Um, one rather lofty one, but still true, that I was always attracted by the ideal of public service. Um, and why? Well, probably I'd had a lot of family in public service. Um, my father was an MP, uh, he was Canadian, but he'd stayed on after the war for being a fighter pilot and got into Parliament and his broad Canadian accent well, didn't seem to be a hitch. Um, my mother was a surprisingly good lower-level former public servant. She was a magistrate. She was head of the local WRVS. She'd been given an MBE for various public service. I had a grandfather who'd been a um, permanent secretary in the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as so he was a great top civil servant and an ambassador. And I had a great uncle, my most famous relative, who was the first Lord Beaverbrook, who was the only politician besides Churchill to be in the war cabinets of World War I and World War II. You can see immediately what sort of family conversation was like. Um, and so somewhere tucked away was the ideal of public service. Uh, the second rather less worthy motive was I thought that politics was the most exciting game in town. Um, it was full of drama, it was full of um, excitement, newspaper headlines and so on. And I could see that Politicians didn't seem very often to have dull moments in their lives. They had, on the whole, high-voltage excitement um, moments. So I sort of, somewhere right from almost being a schoolboy, I constantly that I'm going to be an MP. But I said, you know, the world of politics uh, and, to some extent, journalism was where I would think I'd like to be. Um, once you became an MP and you're in the sort of quite a crazy world, of sometimes a grimy world, sometimes a rewarding world. How did you, did, did you find it hard to always stay on the good track of being there to fulfil your public service? Was it, was it hard in that environment to always be perfectly honest, etc.? Well, there's really no job training to be an MP. And there are almost immediately all kinds of conflicting um, currents and you have to learn which to ride, which to avoid. But the one thing I was taught, um, I think by my father, but I'd heard it, um, a story, probably an apocryphal story, um, and I think the story was about Effie Smith um, and Churchill having a dialogue. It's probably apocryphal. But along the lines of the story was uh, um, Effie Smith saying to Churchill, Winston, forget the bright lights of this place, meaning the House of Commons, always remember and serve the people who sent you here. And 
I actually always did get dug into my constituency. I found my constituents interesting. It's one of the poorest, most deprived area of uh, the southeast, one of the White Cliffs of Dover areas of Ramsgate and Broadstairs and bits of Dover. Uh, and um, there was lots to do in terms of um, just being a good local MP. And I always enjoyed that, always interested by it. and never forgot that, never sort of didn't do my weekly surgeries, my local meetings, party coffee mornings, that kind of thing. But actually, I enjoyed all that side. Um, in terms of the um, higher drama of politics, well, sooner or later you learn how to ask a good or bad a question at Prime Minister's questions when oh, places like a, a bullfight. Um, you learn how to make a quiet, significant speech on an important issue which may be important to your constituency or maybe something you're very interested in personally. Um, I rather curiously uh, was um, a mining MP, which sounds most improbable, but there were some coal mines in East Kent, they were known as the East Kent Coalfield, and the Kent miners were on strike when I got into the House of Commons like everybody else, and their dramas and their strikes and their fights um, with Arthur Scargill, which went on a long time, were very much part of the scene. So was all the channel ports. Back in 1974, there were still problems with illegal migrants on a tiny scale compared to the small boats of today. But the channel itself uh, creates a lot of uh, news stories, political, interesting stories which have to be handled. So it was sort of a mixture. And you learn your trade, I think, gradually. One of the good things when I was young is there are a lot of old buffers, very distinguished old buffers. Some of them have got the Victoria Cross and the Military Cross, but they were quite keen to sort of advise a young whippersnapper and mm. say, you know, that question was far too long. You, uh, you used the word I 14 times, you only needed to use it once. And you absorb your trade of how to be a parliamentarian. And I was able to sit and listen to giants like Michael Foote, Tony Benn on the Labour side, Enoch Powell, um, Ted Heath, very good parliamentarian, not a very great prime minister, but uh, you learn um, in that strange arena of the House of Commons uh, a kind of unique trade, which is called being a parliamentarian, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I also enjoyed the collegiate life of uh, the Commons. On both sides I had some good Labour friends, uh, names of past from history, uh, but I had um, plenty of good Conservative friends, some of whom will be remembered, like Alan Clark and Ian Gower. Um, and so there was, uh, it, was, it seemed a good place to be. Also, the nation, uh, almost every uh, three or four years, the British nation thinks it's ruined and going down the plug hole. It really did feel that way back in 74. Inflation, when I got into Parliament, the day I made my maiden speech, I referred to it, was 21%. People have forgotten that. Um, the trade unions, militant trade unions, was really getting out of control. Um, there were enormous strikes, both in the big picture, like um, big industrial, but also small strikes, like Fleet Street printers. Uh, great chunks of the paper used to either not come out at all, 
or the financial analysts have blank pages, which said this would have been an article by our rugby correspondent, Mr. Sensei, but he's been banned by the National Union of Journalists, militants. And so there was a great, ten I mean, where we, thanks to inflation, trade union, abuse of power, um, tensions in society, the miners. So it was quite a dramatic time, the 70s. Uh, and the 70s didn't start to go right until Margaret Thatcher started to get in. But uh, it, it was a very, very turbulent time in politics and with much more violence, uh, both in my own constituents, I used to have a lot of things thrown at me by militant miners, and even the House of Commons was not the sort of rather quiet, empty benches scenes that you see now. It was full of very dramatic shouting and people getting angry. And I mean, not on one side, Michael Hesseltine on one occasion picked up the mace and shook it angrily at um, uh, the Labour benches. So there was a passion play of politics, which uh, was very exciting to be, have a small part in. Uh so throughout this time, uh, obviously throughout the Thatcher years, um, you're a backbencher and then you become a minister in, I think it was 92, Minister of State for Defence yes. and Um Did you have much, obviously you had a long time as a backbencher, did you have much ambition during that time or was it just fulfilling the duty, the, the, the current roles that you had? Did you want to rise up or uh, was it, yeah? Um. I was 18 years on the backbenches, which yeah. is an unusually long time for anyone who is um, of any competence. Uh, the newspapers will tell you, I'm not entirely sure whether this is true or not, but uh, the newspapers will tell you that I was uh, kept out of the Thatcher government because I had for two or three years dated very happily Carol Thatcher, Margaret and Dennis's daughter. And then we had not got married. The young man who doesn't marry the daughter of somebody who hopes they might get married is not a popular figure. Uh, and um, whatever the rights and wrongs and romantic ups and downs of all that, um, that may have been the reason. But I actually was not at all um, bitter or fed up about that. First of all, I could understand it on mm -hmm. Margaret's part, within whom in the end I got on very well. Uh, I had my ups and downs with her, but I, I really knew her well and liked her and admired her a lot. Um, so, but being on the backbenches um, instead of being in the government was not, as I saw it, and as many other people saw it in those days, a huge negative. Far from it. The life of a backbencher, if you think about it and use it creatively, um, can be really interesting and you do a lot of things to be done, speeches are made. And in those days, and I wish it was still true, Members of Parliament were encouraged almost to have outside interests. There were plenty of barristers working sort of three quarters of the time in the courts. There were and being good MPs. There were businessmen doing the same. And I myself had a very fruitful time while on the back benches. For example, I wrote some big books. I wrote a 380-page biography of President Nixon. I was chairman of a small bank. I was chief executive of a TV company, TVM. So I had a lot of life going on in the hinterland, uh, away from or not directly related to politics. And I think I was a pretty good MP as well. 
Um, the whips, when the parties in government want votes, not speeches, so they're not always thrilled by having somebody who had independent ideas. Um, strangely, the most independent idea I had, which was not popular, was that I was something of a Eurosceptic. Uh, not a militant Eurosceptic, but um, still from the Heath and Thatcher years, most of them were spent with people saying, we are the pit party of Europe. And I personally felt that, no, we, must, we shouldn't be. We should be friends with Europe, but I'm not sure the EEC, as it was called, and then the EU, were actually places where Britain should be at the heart of as a um, full um, member of the, of the Union. Um, I think we should always have a good relationship with Europe, but um, I actually am, a, to that extent, a Eurosceptic, and fairly gently, but nevertheless questioned, all kinds of bits of European legislation. And that um, didn't make me loved by the whips of the party, but it did, I think, make me quite respected. And of course, the view grew in strength and popularity. Um, and the Eurosceptic wing of the Tory party probably now is the Tory party mostly, but it took a long time to get there. But sometimes you need to take a long view in politics. And I mm -hmm. hope I did that sometimes. Yeah. So obviously you you then become a minister, become a cabinet minister um, in the public eye and obviously there's the whole um, you suing the Guardian um, and the whole trial. How does it, and the whole scandal and then obviously you end up in Belmarsh, how, it's such a broad question, but how does it feel both going through, you know, committing a crime and being punished for it, but also that in the public eye, and then your, your family have to deal with that. How did did you feel that your world had ended essentially when that happened? That had happened. Well, so quite a big question. Was, yes, I did feel my world had yeah. ended, which actually it had not. But just trying to respond with a broad answer yeah. to a broad question. Yeah. Let's start in the good times. Yeah. I rose very fast yeah. in the government. Uh, so much so that I was in the key job of Chief Secretary of the Treasury and then uh, tipped um, quite often as being a future leader, yeah. future Prime Minister. Uh, this is not a great exclusive honour. You could fill um, probably the head of Whitehall with people <laughs> who have been tipped to be a future Prime Minister. Just think of the ex-future Prime Ministers on both sides, Kinnock, Heseltine, Clark, Portillo, you could go on and on and on. But I was in that rather non-exclusive club. And when you're in it, um, various things happen. Um, I hope it was not true of me, it went to my head. Um, but what it does do, um, because I was wise enough to know how straight along the odds are and the luck factor in politics. But much more than that, um, it makes all kinds of people rather excited about you, often from a hostile point of view. Um, and the major uh, the major government was shaky and tottering anyway and if a newspaper could bring down a cabinet minister they were quite enthusiastic about doing that and guardian absolutely got their teeth and their claws into me and when they did it instead of what i call rolling with the punches and just saying well that's politics i got foolishly combative and sued them and that and, and led to the unfolding of a tragedy uh, for me. But it was entirely the tragedy was my fault. 
Um, I, A, shouldn't have sued them in the first place, even though they were quite suable for various reasons. They'd made what well, this wasn't a sort of white versus black mm. uh, battle. Um, the things the Guardian had done, which they were eventually very ashamed of, like forging documents and so on. But nevertheless, I was in the wrong, uh, beyond doubt, because I had told a lie. Mm. Uh, and the lie was that I'd stayed in a hotel in Paris uh, and had my hotel bill paid by a friend. But unfortunately for me, he was also a Saudi prince. And when the Guardian, helped by Mr. Marmadoff, I'd said they'd got a great story here, um, the cabinet minister had his bill paid by a Saudi prince. Actually, not against the law, yeah. but you should have made it clear. Yeah. Instead, I said, my wife paid the bill, yeah. and that was a, a, a lie, and eventually caught up with me, and led to being, me being prosecuted for perjury, and then serving an 18-month prison sentence. Now, the description describing that in a few sentences yeah. sounds rather neutral, even though you can see it's negative, but when you're going through a drama which consists largely of defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy and jail, it is a disaster, it's a catastrophe for anybody's political career and human life. But it happened, and um, I, I accepted that it had happened, I didn't fight against it once it came out uh, into the open. I pleaded guilty and went to prison for uh, seven months, it was an 18-month sentence, but now I cure sentencing laws. Um, and prison was not a wholly bad experience. Of course, it was a disaster for my career. Life looked as though it was completely over. On the other hand, um, A, I survived it quite happily and uh, I got on well with my fellow prisoners, got very interested in it. And then the biggest blessing of all was that while in prison, or really before going to prison, a Christian faith which had been pretty feeble. I would say I was a half-Christian, which I now know is about use as being half-pregnant, but at the time it seemed okay to sort of be, go to church every so often and say the right things on Sundays. didn't matter very much who didn't do the right things the rest of the week. But there are plenty of people in that half-committed, half-Christian sort of phase. Uh, I think I'd have been insensitive if after having the kind of career car crash that I'd had, if I didn't start to think, sort of where did I go wrong, not who said what to whom and which newspaper article, but much more what was fundamentally wrong in my character or in my life. And I started to get on the road um, to a committed Christian life. And that wasn't a sort of instant conversion. I used to worry a great deal of whether I was having what they call a foxhole conversion, just because I'm frightened, just because I'm uh, upset that everything's going wrong. You dive into a foxhole uh, called God. Um, I was very keen not to do that. I was keen to think it through. How serious am I? Is it real? Is it all true? And um, when I came out of prison, I made another interesting career change. I went to the one institution in Britain that had worse food than a prison and more uncomfortable beds than a prison. And this was an Anglican theological college, very respectable and renowned one called Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. And there I read theology and studied theology. Uh, and a lot of people at that college were going to be priests. 
I absolutely knew that I would not be a priest. I was too old, too unsuitable. I was, but nevertheless, I really did want to get to know this uh, strange figure called God. And theology is, of course, the study of God. Uh, and so I had uh, two and a half really very f fulfilling years just studying God, studying theology. And at the same time, um, with some of my young friends who wanted to be priests, helping them going on pastoral visits with them, going on um, missions with them. So I was actually getting into the Christian world and to some extent into the world of being a trainee priest. But unlike all of them, I absolutely knew being a priest was wrong for me. Uh, of course that changed, but it took a long time to change. But when I finished at um, Wycliffe with my uh, theology degree or qualification, I um, uh, then went back into ordinary commercial life. I did a bit of business, quite a few more books, um, some by this time spiritual books, like a book on the Psalms and things like that. Um, but um, I went back into ordinary life, but at the same time continuing to be, I hope, uh, trying to be a good Christian. Uh, and secondly, um, I um, went to do prison ministry. There's a lot of good layman life in prison ministry. Um, you go and help uh, chaplaincy at various prisons. You um, help prisoners to get rehabilitated. You, um, I did quite a bit in the United States as it happens, but that was just a coincidence really. But still, I got into this world of prison fellowship, prison ministry, prison service, but as a layman. Uh, and I had no intention of stopping being a layman. Uh, I was getting quite successful with my pen. I wrote a book on Margaret Thatcher, biography which sold well. I was often writing newspaper articles and lecturing. So I was having, um, by the time I was um, entering my 70s, um, quite a good life. Uh, I had plenty of people say uh, rude things about me still, including uh, the idea that I'd become a Christian. And, you know, this was regarded as considerable cynicism by some people, not least on my old <laughs> adversaries, the Guardian newspaper, but still. Um, I, I was um, uh, 15 years out of coming out of prison. Um, I was um, sort of rehabilitated mm -hmm. and doing okay um, and enjoying life um, and happily married, uh, remarried uh, um, the second time. So life was pretty good. And then a sort of thunderbolt happened and I became uh, an um, ordained priest and prison chaplain. But that was 15 years after all these dramas mm. we've just been talking about. Um, how did you know that Christianity was true? How did you know that in history Jesus came down and died for your sins? How, how do you come to accept that it's true? Was it experiential? Was it through reading the Bible? How, because I guess for some people that's just the fundamental thing. Yeah. It's a, a good question to which there are a hundred answers. Mm. They're different in people's cases. How do I know it was true? Mm. Um, now, can I prove it to the satisfaction of a scientist or mathematician? No. Do I know it's true? Yes. How do I know it's true? Well, I think there are three or four different routes. First of all, 
I did more than my fair share of pretty serious um, biblical and theological study. And there, is, there are gold themes in, in the Bible and in Christian writings which tell me that I know, having read that passage or experienced that experience, uh, that that helps me to be very, very sure it's true. Then, of course, um, there's the life of prayer. And something which really makes you sit up is when prayers get answered. Um, and um, prayers not for yourself, but sometimes for other people. Um, and if that is happening, that's a huge confirmation uh, that um, uh, what this is all about is true. If uh, prayer, sometimes seemingly almost miraculous prayers, um, sometimes people are very, very sick to get a recover or something to happen which seems almost impossible, uh, but it does. And I had some of those experiences. Um, then sometimes I experience once or twice something called theophany. Theophany is a pompous word meaning a direct experience of God, when God really seems to be speaking to you and talking to you, and you realize that this voice you think must be the voice of God. And I'll give you one example of that. Um, Fifteen years after I've been out of prison, I'm sitting in the chair I'm sitting in now, and very often I say in my prayers, still to this day, is there anything else you want me to doing, be doing, God? I mean, and suddenly this voice, not a literary voice, but a sort of murmuring in my head, said, yes, I want you now to go and be a priest, an ordained priest. And I listened to this, and my immediate reaction was to say, God, if that's you talking by any chance, please shut up. It, it's quite wrong. I'd be a very bad priest. Uh, it's not, not a sensible idea at all. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't believe it's you talking. So. Um, and these murmurs, however, did not stop. Um, of this, uh, when I say voice, it's very often things like feelings, um, whisperings. Um, there's no saying, if you don't listen to God's whispers, one day you'll have to listen to God's shouts. And uh, so this whisperings, murmurings, mumblings, feelings and that continued, uh, with me being slightly disconcerted by it, but also absolutely knowing in my own mm. secular heart <clears> that it was quite wrong for me to be a priest. I just wasn't worthy of it, wasn't up to it, wasn't good enough for it, wasn't capable of doing it. So I... I and then uh, the murmurings changed, <clears throat> and the voice said, actually what I meant was, I wanted you to be an ordained prison chaplain. Now that set me back in my tracks, because I actually knew I could do it. How? Because I was doing all this lay ministry in prisons. I was often giving pastoral advice, saying prayers of prisons. I also knew that the prison chaplaincy world was uh, desperately short of... Um, uh, people who have certain skills which can go very well in a prison. I also know what, how useful it was to have been a prisoner and then to turn prison chaplain, call it be a poacher turned a gamekeeper, whatever you like. But nevertheless, I then knew that I couldn't say I'd be useless at it. It's not for me. I knew that I could be a prison chaplain. And then I thought, well, 
maybe these murmurings, I better give in to them. Maybe it was the, uh, the voice of God murmuring all this time. So I then effectively asked a bishop whether he would be willing to ordain me. It's a quite an elaborate process how you get ordained. But um, now, that's part of six years ago, I became ordained. I've been ordained ever since. I'm a, a busy prison chaplain and uh, a priest, and, and I love the world. I love the work I do. That's the happiest time of my life. Mm. Was, was you, so was you, you becoming a Christian a case of you seeking God or God seeking you? As in, when you, when you went to... I know you'd done the Alpha course mm. before, but you were still sort of the half-lukewarm Christian. You went to jail, and I gather in jail you properly became a Christian. When you went to jail, was it out of you desiring to find the truth, or was it? Did you have no like desire, but somehow God pushed you into it? Was it mixed? I don't quite know the answer to your question, mm. but I'll have a shot at it. First of all, I had no sudden dramatic yeah. conversion experience. There was not a moment when I. Uh, said, Hallelujah, I'm a Christian. Far from it. Um, I was conscious that there was a long um, road on which I was walking in the direction of being a Christian. Um, uh, and a Christian just means a servant of God. Um, so, uh, and, and on, when I was on that road, <clears throat> there was a great deal of stumbling, backsliding, sinning, doubting, thinking it was all rubbish, and yet and yet and yet, rather like somebody on a train journey across the Asia, when you cross all kinds of frontiers and national boundaries, you don't always actually know when you've crossed the frontier, but you do know when you've arrived in the new country of a new and deeper and growing and committed faith. I mean, I'm hope still growing. I'm not a perfect, a saintly Christian, far from it. I, I fail daily. But nevertheless, I'm uh, totally committed and extremely happy for being committed. And once you know there is a God, there's nothing much else you really want to do that really gets you. Um, other people are different. But so I, I think I know where I am and what I'm trying to do. Um, but I've never at any stage thought, I am saved. Mm. Uh, I've never at any stage thought, um, I am um, absolutely patting myself on the back because I'm a Christian. Mm. Uh, far from it. I think it's a journey which goes on. Um, I hope I'm not going to fall and fail on the journey. And I know, I hope what the destination is. But it's um, a continuing struggle, a continuing walk a continuing challenge of service, and I'm supremely happy trying to meet that challenge. Mm. And finally, you would agree that your, I know it's an, maybe annoying people reference the scandal as the thing that sort of was the most public aspect of your career, but without that scandal, do you think that you'd be a Christian now? Do you think that was fundamental with, in terms of you becoming a Christian? First of all, I don't mind at all no. anybody asking questions <laughs> as you're doing, yeah. or sometimes being quite rude to me I'm sorry. about being a Christian. I hope I wasn't rude. No, no not no, at all, no, not in no, the least. No, but I mean, that sort of goes to the territory. And um, for years and years, I 
put up with people saying I was a humbug and being uh, uh, announced to be a Christian. How very convenient, a lot of people said. <laughs> and I had some sympathy with that point of view. Um, and um, uh, what I do think is the really important thing is that um, you... Um, I mean, I suppose I look like an almost classic case of someone who has been saved, converted, changed, put on a new... Um, I don't really think of myself as any kind of role model. I, I, I'm just a, a sinner who's been rescued, um, but put on a road of service, which I love and I hope God approves. Um, so, um, I'm, my... So history is part of me, but uh, finally, um, the answer to your question: Do I think I'd have got there without going through mm. um, the deep catastrophe of um, going to prison, uh, getting disgraced, and all that? Um, I think probably not. Mm. Uh, I think I'd. Um, I hope I'd have learnt. A good few things from, and, and I was always interested. <clears throat> you, you never quite know how God is going to call, yeah. and how strongly, or how you yourself will react. Um, it was clearly easier uh, to respond to God um, after the kind of journey I'd been through, um, of which prison, although it was vitally important part, was not perhaps as important as learning how to pray and learning how to pray with other people who had great Christian wisdom. And prison was a part of that. I mean, I was in a prison prayer group, all right, um, but I think it was the blind leading the blind half the time um, among all the bank robbers and um, villains that I was in with. Um, and I was a villain too, so it, it was um, a complicated process which I, I struggle to describe adequately, but I'm doing my best to answer your questions. Well, thank you so much. You've definitely given great answers. So okay. thanks for featuring. And yeah. Thank you so much for listening to that interview with Jonathan Aitken. It was certainly one of my favourite interviews, uh, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, keep an eye out for next Saturday's episode, which is an interview with Nicholas Frank, um, who's the son of Hans Frank, the Nazi Governor-General of Poland during World War II, also Hitler's personal lawyer. And so Nicholas Frank, as he became, as he grew older and became aware of his his father's crimes, began to hate his father, obviously. And so he's had to deal with the legacy of his father and try to make a positive difference. So that should be a really interesting interview. Before then, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas.